The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. They say it's never over till it's over. In March 1865, the Civil War may have seemed like it was about to be over, but no one told the Confederate forces defending North Carolina from Sherman's army as it marched up from South Carolina, or from Schofield's Union troops as they moved inland from the coast to link up with Sherman. The result of the latter move was a sharp fight at Wise's Forks, a battle that featured the last mass capture of Union troops in combat. The story is told in To Prepare for Sherman's Coming, The Battle of Wise's Forks, March 1865, by Wade Sokolowski and Mark A. Smith. And we'll talk with co-author Wade Sokolowski tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, the moist, rain-soaked campus of ECU here in Greenville, North Carolina. It's a cold, thoroughly dark October evening, the uh, last one before daylight savings. It'll be absolutely pitch dark this time next week. But 
although I'm coming to you from ECU, I'm not speaking for ECU, not representing the Department of Marketing and Communications or whoever's in charge of our, our PR these days, not the History Department, not the Division of Academic Affairs or the College of Arts and Sciences or any of the other subunits for which I might speak, rather just me, and I know my guest will do the same, as we always do here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, last week we did not have a live show. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I was It turned into a belated fall break here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. Uh, this happened because I was negotiating uh, with a guest and we had some time limitations. We tried to work things around and make it happen and it just didn't end up happening. So we ended up not having to do a, not being able to do a live show last week. I want to dispel the rumor that my failure to appear uh, live on the air last Wednesday was because of the uh, bizarre and distressing sports events of the previous weekend. The uh, I, I'm sure everybody knows about it. It was all over ESPN. There were the constant replays uh, again and again. The uh, how it happened that uh, Greenville FC gave up a two gave up two goals in the second half in local recreational soccer, and uh, my team, uh, the, the Greenville, lost four to three. A game that we had well in hand in the second half. I don't know. I don't know how it could have happened. Um, but those replays, at least in my head, just keep going. Uh, I gather there was some college football a couple of weeks ago. I think Michigan played State. Uh, if you heard about that, uh, I'm not even worried about that. Well, let's talk about something else. Thanks to everybody who has continued to uh, contribute to Civil War Talk Radio. You can do that by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org. Click on the PayPal button. And as has been the case for the last few weeks, your contributions this month and uh, through the rest of this calendar year will contribute not only to the direct benefit of Civil War Talk Radio in the sense of making me aware you're out there and and listening and showing appreciation, but also they'll be used uh, to help contribute to the public history project on our campus here at ECU, the uh, Heritage Hall project, which the success of which in turn will secure the role of public history as a sub-discipline and will further impress the administration with the uh, far reach of Civil War Talk Radio, a project that they don't fully understand, but that's okay. They don't need to. Actually, some of them do. Some of them even listen. The Board of Trustees uh, president uh, is a listener, for example. There are people who know what we're up to, but uh, by, uh, by demonstrating your appreciation for the show, it will help uh, illustrate that, that we can put our money where our mouth is, not just the STEM disciplines that get these billion-dollar grants to do exciting things with centrifuges or white mice, uh, but also the humanities and social sciences can generate at least some income. So uh, it would be much appreciated if you could uh, contribute this week to Civil War Talk Radio. And this fund drive, which has been going for a few weeks, goes for the rest of the year, is the only one in the first 12 years of the show, and hopefully will be the only one for the next 12 years. So contribute now. I'll be quiet after that. 
Next week, another interesting program. Let's look ahead. You can find out from impedimentsofwar.org what's going on, but I'll let you know right now that Christian G. Samito is going to be our return guest. His new book is Lincoln and the 13th Amendment from the Concise Lincoln Library series. After that, on November 18th, it's My Dear Wife and Children, Civil War Letters from a Second Minnesota Volunteer. That's edited and annotated by Nick K. Adams. The following week, shockingly, already is Thanksgiving. It's hard to believe we've, we've come that far into the semester this quickly. But there it is. When we come back from Thanksgiving, a book I am anxious to read, uh, Our Man in Charleston, Britain's Secret Agent in the Civil War South, by Christopher Dickey. And then... Uh, I'm getting these out of order. That one's coming up on the 11th, on Armistice Day. And Nick Adams uh, and the Second Minnesota Letters will be on uh, November 18th. Hard to read my own typing here. Then we get to Thanksgiving. And when we come back in December, we'll be talking with Nancy Dane, who has produced a uh, documentary history of the Civil War in the Arkansas River Valley called Tattered Glory, which was really a side project for a series of four novels of the Civil War in Arkansas that she has written. And what I'm particularly interested in discussing with her, two children's books, young, very young children's books on uh, the Civil War in Arkansas on specific stories and finding out how that audience, the uh, early reader audience, might tie into the subject that we all are so interested in. So lots coming up on Civil War Talk Radio. Please uh, continue to join us. Thank you all for those who have uh, sent the contributions and those who have sent their suggestions for uh, guests to be on the show. Christopher Dickey is is just such a a suggestion. I was uh, delighted to learn more about his book and and get hold of him and schedule him for November 11th. So lots, uh, uh, lots of benefit when you contact me and let me know what you want to here on the show. Tonight we have a return guest. There's an informal five-year rule that I've found that I have to maintain as far as guests coming back to the show because people who write books, you know, once they get that bad habit, they, they can't break it. They write another and another. And, you know, we could have Harold Holzer or, uh, you know, uh, Jack Davis on the show pretty much every other week alternating with the books they produce. So instead of doing that to give room for more people, I try to wait five years between a return engagement, and it's certainly time for that for uh, our guest tonight. He is uh, Colonel, retired, Wade Sokolowski, uh, a graduate of this esteemed institution of higher learning, and co-author with Mark A. Smith of several books. Uh, Earlier, it was... uh, the book on the the uh, Battle of Aversboro and, and Bentonville, and today it is to prepare for Sherman's coming, the Battle of Wise's Forks, March 1865. Wade, are you there? Uh, good evening, Jerry. It's uh, a little raining down over here in Beaufort, just like it is in Greenville. It is. It's been a wet, uh, wet fall for for a good part of the time, but but no flooding. I hope you don't have any there. No, nothing. Nothing like the previous couple weeks ago. It was really bad then. No, that that was that was tough. And our neighbors in South Carolina really, really got hammered by that. 
Uh, well, for those who didn't hear the show uh, five years ago, and I don't know why anyone wouldn't, uh, remind our, our listeners a little bit about your, your background uh, and what brings you to uh, writing about the Civil War. Yes, Jerry. Um, roughly in 2005, Mark Smith and I co-authored our first book, which was entitled uh, No Such Army Since the Days of Julius Caesar, uh, Fayetteville to Aversboro. And which basically covered a um, it covered the where Mark Bradley just briefly mentions those and Mark Bradley, Doctor Bradley, in his book Last Stand in the Carolinas, the Battle of Bentonville, he introduces the forces and he's bringing the forces to Bentonville and he touches on the Fayetteville and the destruction of the Fayetteville arsenal as well as the Battle of Aversboro, which is the run up. Um, and what Mark and I decided to do was to expand on that to a book-length study where, where Mark would only put three or four pages to the battle itself. Uh, we decided to go with a book-length study. And we basically, once that one came out in 2005, we, we switched focus a little bit more to the east over in Kinston, where there's another part of the Carolinas campaign. And once again, just like before, Mark Bradley uh, same way with uh, John G. Barrett in 1965 when he put out his book on uh, Civil War North Carolina. Um, just a few pages towards the Battle of Wise's Forks. It's almost like the uh, forgotten battle, although arguably it's the second largest fought here in North Carolina. And it's the first of four major battles that will occur in a short 12-day span in March of 1865 that all deals with Sherman's coming here in North Carolina. Well, that that gets to uh, sort of the sixty-four dollar question about this. Or actually, there are, there are two such questions. First one is, what is the name of the battle? Uh, because if you look at different books, you see it's Wise Forks, Wise's Forks, Wise spelled with an H and a Y. Uh, I, there, I've seen half a dozen different ways to spell Wise or Wise's Forks. Uh, how do you spell it, and why? Jerry, that's a that's a good question. And actually it's one I had a good conversation with Mark Bradley with over as I struggled with it. Because in the modern sense, in the modern times, even the small community of Wise Fork exists today along Highway seventy between Kinston and Newburn. Um, in my research, um, when you look at it from the Confederate side, when you look at the diaries and letters and journals and even in DH Hill, which is the only official report published, Wise's Forks is not used at all. It's the Battle of Confederates would refer to it as the Kinston, uh, Southwest Creek, Cobb's Mill, Jackson's Mill. And if you were a Confederate soldier in the Army of Tennessee from the Deep South, when you read their letters or diary, they would put a G in there and they would call it Kingston uh, instead of Kinston because of the you know, Kingston, Tennessee, Mississippi, etc. So from the Confederate side, it's pretty simple. They wouldn't want to call it that. Um, on the Union side, I looked at it from the official reports uh, by the U.S. Army, written by General Cox, Schofield, Clawson, uh, several others. They re spell it the way I do, Wise's Forks. Um, at the time of the battle, um, there was two forks in the road, and of course, if you travel down there today, there's no longer any forks in the road. It's, all, it's only an intersection there right before you get into Kinston. Um, so when I wrestled with this idea, 
you know, I, I finally made the decision, um, how did the Army spell it? And that's how the U.S. Army spelled it at the time in all their official reports and, and on their battle maps from the time. And then I think what really made the final decision for me when I looked at the regimental colors of the 123rd Indiana, because you know how in the Civil War regiments they would stencil on or paint on their battle honors from various battles, uh, the 123rd Indiana Regimental Colors uh, has it spelled Wise's Forks. Um, and that, being a soldier, I kind of went with the way the soldier spelled it, um, and that's that's kind of what led it to it. And Mark said, hey, well, Wade, that's, I think you convinced yourself. That <laughs> makes sense to me. I mean, I actually went back and looked at how did, how did John G. Barrett spell it in Civil War North Carolina. He spelled it Wise's Forks. I looked how Mark Bradley spelled it in Last Day in the Carolinas. He spelled it Wise's Forks. So I had a couple of very notable historians of your North Carolina history, and that's how they spelled it. And I just kind of wanted to keep it into the context of the time of the battle itself. There truly was two forks in the road. It was a very critical piece of terrain that would come into play on March 10th. Um, and that, that led to my ultimate decision, Jerry. I, that makes a lot of sense to follow the, the soldiers and the historians and their precedent and uh, and come up with that. But it does highlight something also that, that we experience both studying history and the soldiers at the time of multiple names for the same piece of ground or multiple yeah. spellings where uh, that can, can lead to confusion, certainly. And pronunciation, I, I've as, as a non-North Carolinian, I've noticed the fugitive uh, D in, in Goldsboro has disappeared, uh, and it's just pronounced Goldsboro by some people, <laughs> but it migrated north up to Wilson, which many people pronounce Wilson. Uh, uh-huh. So the consonant, it didn't leave the state, it just went 20, you know, 30 miles away. Um, but the, the, the Wise's Forks, uh, as you point out, there is no place, uh, there is a place called Wise Forks today, spelled W-Y-S-E, but there's no... Uh, the battle is very battleground is very different, and in fact, last Sunday, when I was reading, started to to read this book, I thought, well, these these Savas Beatty books often have a driving tour in the back. I'll go to the office, get the book, drive down there, and, and see it for myself. And uh, your book does not have a driving tour, which. Uh, is not a problem because the the visitor center there has a very good one, uh, and yes, your book yes. is dedicated to more uh, more historical things, really. But driving around the area, there's uh, there are very few traces of the battle. There there is a trail, and I'm I'm seeing where we're just about out of time for our first segment. So let me leave you with this question. We'll come back and talk about it. Uh, what what's your experience studying a, a, a ghost battlefield where where uh, there are no monuments, there's no national park, there's no state park, there's there's no preserved land at all, yet a lot happened there. So we'll take a short break and come back and talk with our guest tonight, Wade Sokolowski, co-author, along with Mark A. Smith of to prepare for Sherman's coming, the Battle of Wise's Forks, March 1865. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stream- 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Wade Sokolowski. He's co-author, along with Mark A. Smith, of To Prepare for Sherman's Coming, The Battle of Wise's Forks, March 1865. Talked a little bit in the first half about what the heck this actual place is, Wise's Forks, which goes by variant spellings today. And uh, Wade, the question I wanted to ask as we left with was the question of the the sort of fugitive battlefield. Uh, When our listeners go to battlefields, they think of Gettysburg or Antietam, clearly marked public area, lots of monuments. Uh, This battlefield is not small, and a lot happened there, but I, I found it fascinating to, to follow a driving tour around a place that was not uh, uh, not marked in the, the conventional sense. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, the good thing about it is um, there's still several key, uh, for example, historic homes, mm-hmm. um, the Voss House, Cobb House. The railroad is essentially the same location um, that it was in 1865. Right there where Highway 70 crosses Southwest Creek, that's where the mill was. The ruins of the mill are still in the wood, wood line there along the creek. So you've got these reference points that kind of help you. Um, but I also looked at some of the locals, and, and I've got to I've got to say thank you very much to Mr. Uh, Donnie Taylor, who's the site manager at Bentonville Battlefield. Uh, he grew up on the Wises Fort Battlefield. Uh, Mr. Dennis Harper, uh, local there, who's done a lot of uh, uh, 
metal detecting along the battlefield. You have Mr. Bill Rowland from Kinston and all his early works in recording everything that he uh, recovered artifact-wise around the battlefield. All those elements, when you link them together, Jerry, it kind of helps to bracket and, and put everything into one little square for you. And fortunately, you know, the, although Highway 70 is, is a dual-lane highway now, it's essentially the same location where the Dover Road was between Newburn and Kinston. Uh, like I said, the railroad's still there. The British Road is primarily in the same location. So you're able to, when you study and understand the battle, you've got those reference points like that. And then when you talk to some of the locals who grew up on the battlefield, because even on Donnie Teller's land, he's got the remnants of of uh, some of the earthworks there. So all those things kind of help to uh, guide you on azimuth in regards to uh, your study. And so when you read an account, uh, you're able to kind of at least get in the general area of the battlefield. And and like Donnie Taylor was was a was a key. I mean, two, three, four times. Uh, he would meet me with Harry Kinston on Saturday morning, and we would go out across the battlefield, and uh, Dennis Harper took me out a couple times. So whenever I had a question that was just I just couldn't quite figure out and make it relate to that, because fortunately, Wise's Fork, it's, it's still primarily agricultural. I mean, there's modern homes all over the place, but uh, we're, we're blessed in the fact that uh, it's mostly farmland now. Of course, right now there is the threat of, uh, the solar farms and, of course, the p- potential of a Highway 70 bypass around Kinston. But, but for all practical purposes, um, um, you're able to kind of, using those different points, like I said, it kind of connected the dots for me, Jerry. It, that makes sense. I mean, I'd, as I was driving around, getting out at the different uh, tour spots that are marked in the, the Visitor's uh, Center tour guide, the view sheds are not well. I, I don't know what they were like, but they they didn't seem radically different. There may be trees different now, but there are there's no uh, urban development. There's not much urban sprawl out there at this point. Uh, we're 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 lucky that, and of course, it the fact that the ground is agricultural. A lot of it is proper. It was very swampy at the time during the mm-hmm. battle. You read a lot of the soldier accounts are talking about in you know in a foot of water crossing through a couple feet of water. Um, of course, the farmland now with our techniques, the, war, the fields are more properly drained, of course. Um, you don't have that like we did then. There was one house, uh, I, I, driving out uh, on 70 and, and going over the ground where General Hoke launched his attack on the, the first day of the battle. And there's a, a private home with an enormous, three enormous uh, Confederate national flags, the first, second, and third pattern national flags, and then uh, Lee's Army's battle flag, and uh, these were huge flags draped across the front of the house like you couldn't see out the windows. Uh, So there's somebody who lives literally on the battlefield uh, who still feels pretty strongly about the issues, apparently. Uh, I don't know if that's... There's several members from uh, that area who had ancestors that fought there, particularly the 67th North Carolina, 68th North Carolina. Um, there's definitely when you when you do your talks in Kinston, you're, you're the potential of having an ancestor, uh, uh, the descendant of an ancestor who fought at that battle is highly likely. 
you got you got to bring your A game because you're you're probably going to get asked a question <laughs> about a a specific regimen sometimes like that. So yeah, I've got to I've got to be on my toes there. That's that's excellent. The um, well, the question comes up then: What brought the armies to this place? You point out it's an obscure, un- unjustly obscure battle. And I was thinking, you know, compare it to their battles uh, that were smaller than this that are much better known. Ball's Bluff uh, sort of comes to mind as an early one. Uh, but you write in the final analysis in your, your last chapter uh, that its importance transcends the tactical level of warfare. Uh, why was this important on a, uh, on a strategic level, on a higher level? What, what, what brought the armies there? The railroad. It's all about, the, from the Union side, from, from Schofield and Cox's perspective, it's all about the Atlantic and North Carolina Railroad, which originates in Moorhead City or whichever how you want to look at it. Basically, between Moorhead City and Goldsboro runs the Atlantic and North Carolina Railroad. Uh, before Sherman ever left Savannah, he looks at a map and he tells General Easton and Colonel Beckwith and W.W. Wright, who's his chief railroad engineer, basically meet me in Goldsboro mid-March and be able to refit and rearm my army before it continues north into Virginia to link up with Grant. So from the Union side, it's, it's a, the railroad is what it's all about. Um, it links from the tactical perspective, but when you bring in Moorhead City and the flow of forces, all you know, the 23rd Corps all the way from basically Tennessee over to Annapolis and Alexandria, then put on vessels and sent down here to the coast of North Carolina. You look at the tons of material coming out of Alexandria and up north, the northern depots. All that material is flowing into the port at Moorhead City. And for that material to get to Sherman, uh, it is the railroad. But it takes... It requires uh, Quartermaster General Miggs. It's from the strategic level of war, the war, different various departments in, uh, that make up the military is with the Navy and the contracted vessels. It's all about Sherman. And even Sherman's own words, he said, to prepare for my coming is what's going on in eastern North Carolina. You know, Jeremy, you look at it, before uh, General Terry and Admiral Porter made the final and successful push on Fisher, Fort Fisher, there's barely 12,000 Union soldiers in eastern North Carolina scattered between Beaufort, Newburn, Moorhead City, Roanoke, Hatteras, Elizabeth City. But when you think about it, when Sherman crosses that state line that first week of March with the elements coming out of Wilmington and Moorhead City along with Sherman, we're almost approaching 90,000 Union soldiers in our state. And when you think about these soldiers need to be fed a couple hot meals a day and all their horses and mules with oats and hay, all that material has got to come into our ports. And that's where you make this connection uh, because there's no way they could forage for all that in eastern North Carolina and sustain themselves. So there's your connection to the strategic level of war. And operationally, all these things from operational perspective are all setting the conditions for Sherman's arrival. You know, Sherman's coming so, up from Savannah, and he's leaving it in their hands. So he's Sherman's marching north, and and we we talked uh, just on our last show two weeks ago with the uh, the Tom Robertson who edited the Journal of a Confederate Surgeon, accompanying uh, Hardy's mm-hmm. men uh, mm-hmm. 
marching ahead of Sherman. So so we've got fixed in our mind. Here's Sherman going north through South Carolina into North Carolina. But at some point, his supply line is so long back to Savannah that he wants a new coastal supply base. And the Union has been in eastern North Carolina since 1862, since Burnside got here. Uh, Correct. So, so they've held Moorhead City and, and Beaufort and Fort Macon and uh, eventually New Bern and Plymouth and all these other points uh, in the eastern part of the state. But then they've stayed there through 62, 63, 64. There's, there's sort of uh, uh, not a truce, but a, a stalemate. Uh, neither side mm-hmm. makes a push. And you're saying that with the impending arrival of Sherman, now there's suddenly an impetus for the Union to pour men and supplies into the coast, but they've got to get inland to reach Sherman, and they've got to go on the railroad, and now, what's the Confederate view of all this? Well, it's, it's, of course, Johnston, soon after the, uh, with Columbia falling, the capital of South Carolina, the evacuation of Wilmington, you know, it's kind of like the final straw. Um, Joe Johnson is, is brought back, although it be it uh, begrudgingly, by Jeff Davis and put in command of the forces here that's going to gather in North Carolina to try to confront Sherman. And obviously Sherman is the primary threat. Um, however, this is in relationship to the Battle of Wise's Forks. Johnson's got a tremendous task because he's having to deal with multiple threats now coming from multiple directions. Sherman out of South Carolina. You know you've got a force down in Wilmington under General Terry. Here comes General Cox out of Newburn. Um, they know they're trying to link up with Sherman. Obviously, they figured it out by now that Goldsboro's the piece. Um, now Johnson has to deal with that. And in this battle here, Johnson takes an amount of risk. Um, as one historian said, uh, Tom Conley um, said Johnston was, was a foolhardy plan. He's risking valuable assets uh, by turning his back on Sherman and going after Cox coming out of Newburn. Um, whereas, um, you know, our point is is that Johnston, you know, it's late in the game. You're down. You've got to take some measure of risk. If you allow those elements to unite, there's no way. Uh, you're, you're outnumbered 90 to 20,000, so it, it's it's no no chance. So Johnson takes that element of risk and uh, allows Bragg to turn on, turn against, to possibly defeat or delay or turn back this element coming out of Newburn. Because all this time, Johnston's trying to assemble a force, and Smithfield along the railroad is where the Army of Tennessee is flowing in. So Johnston makes this risk, and he's actually committing assets from the Army of Tennessee over to reinforce Hoke at Kinston. So the stage is set. Um, by March 7th, 1865, the forces are gathering to, uh, to confront this Union advance out of Newburn first, then with the intention to very quickly turn around, and now let's deal with Sherman. Now, one of the things that handicaps the Confederates is the command situation. You, you mentioned uh, names that listeners will recognize, like Joe Johnston or Braxton Bragg. Uh, eventually you have D.H. Hill involved. You've got all these commanders. You've got lots of uh, uh, leaders, but not that many followers. You've got an entire Absolutely. corps. And, what, and what's, what's troubling is some of those leaders, I guarantee you're not on each other's Christmas card list. 
every year <laughs> when you look at uh, General Bragg and D.H. Hill, and we know the relationship uh, between Johnston and Bragg. And Johnston even tells D.H. Hill when, he, when Johnston makes the decision to reinforce General Hoke and Bragg over in Kinston with elements from the lead elements of the Army of Tennessee that, that's got the Smithfield, that's arrived at Smithfield uh, first. He tells D.H. Hill, you know, I beg you to forget the past for this emergency. So you have that kind of command climate there. And then once you get to Kinston, especially in the Army of Tennessee, uh, barely 2,200 soldiers, but I can name a half a dozen generals from D.H. Hill, General Waffle, Pettis, Johnston, uh, Clayton. I mean, it's... But they're These are S.D. Lee's corps, too. Uh, S.D. Lee's entire... S.D. Lee's corps... Uh, yeah, D.S.D. Lee, uh, Stephen D. Lee is not there, but uh, D.H. Hill will assume command of uh, Lee's Corps, some of the first elements from the Army of Tennessee that will arrive and Smithfield first, so D.H. Hill is basically put in charge of those. The other major element from the Army of Tennessee is A.P. Stewart's Corps, which uh, General Waffle will bring in the evening of uh, March 9th into the morning of March 10th. But you know, to listeners who are thinking, "Oh, a corps—that's ten, twelve thousand guys." Uh, yeah. That's not the case here. Well, how big is this Confederate force? Uh, when you when you tally it all up, somewhere between nine, ten thousand, depending on whose beer math you you want to follow. There, Jerry, um, General Hoke is clearly the most uh, is the strongest element there, pushing roughly four thousand, a little bit more. Uh, the Army of Tennessee will make up the difference around, like I said, around approximately 2,200 men. Uh, the junior reserves, this is the first time that we will see our young 16- and 17-year-old Tar Heels that are brought together for the first time as a brigade. And, and they will be one of the strongest brigades, one of the largest brigades manpower-wise for the rest of the Carolinas campaign. They're, they're bringing in over 1,200. Um, the 67th North Carolina is one of the largest regiments about 700 men. So all total, uh, when you when you tally it all up, no over 9,000 Confederates. So so a not an insignificant force, not as many men as as charged with picket across uh, towards Seminary Ridge, uh, but certainly far less than Lee's whole army. Uh, yes. Uh, and what's and what's significant about them is. The vast majority of them are combat veterans. I mean, they mm-hmm. well experienced hoax division, Army Northern Virginia. You've got the survivors of the Army of Tennessee. What's left to what's left of them after Atlanta campaign, Nashville, and Franklin. So you've got some very experienced Confederate infantrymen um, that's on that battlefield on, on March eighth, ninth, and tenth. Well, let's take a Versus short break. What what Cox is doing. I'm sorry, it's time for a break. We're going to take a short break and find out what happened on March 8th uh, and 9th and 10th uh, when these two armies uh, do come together at Wise's Forks. We're talking tonight with Wade Sokolowski, co-author of To Prepare for Sherman's Coming, the Battle of Wise's Forks, March 1865. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Mark Sokolowski, co- I'm sorry, Wade Sokolowski, co-author with Mark Smith of the book To Prepare for Sherman's Coming, The Battle of Wise's Forks, March 1865. Uh, set the stage, Schofield uh, commanding Union forces on the coast to sent Cox and the Union army inland to try to link up with Sherman's massive army coming up from the south. Braxton Bragg has sent a smaller Confederate force to move eastward from Kinston and block the Union incursion from the coast. And the battle begins with the Union mysteriously deploying two regiments and a section of artillery uh, hundreds of yards away from the main body, right in front of the Confederates. Our, our listeners, if they don't already know, can guess what's about to happen to them. Uh, what did happen to them? Well, wait, I mean, sorry, Jerry. Uh, it's unfortunately disaster fell upon them. Um, in the evening of March 7th, the, the, the battle is set for the next day. Interestingly, Palmer, General Palmer, uh, is the lead division that's come up along with, with General Carter. And General Cox is, is more to the rear. During this time, General Cox is struggling with the railroad, problems of getting the railroad. He only has 10 wagons to resupply a, a, you know, a total of about roughly 13,000 men. So his, his focus is more towards the rear area in fixing his problems, and he's trusting Palmer and Carter. But by the evening of March 7th, after the skirmishing all day long, they allowed themselves to be their final positions were not very tactically sound. Uh, you mentioned uh, those two regiments that belonged to uh, Upham's Brigade, the 15th Connecticut and 27th Massachusetts. They're almost uh, almost well over a mile uh, deployed 
in front of, all out there by themselves, from their two brigades in Carter's division that's left back at Wise's Forks. And to the north, uh, General Palmer's division and his brigades are equally scattered out. It's a recipe for disaster. They're not tied in with one another. It's almost like they've allowed themselves to be lulled into this sense of, uh, it's okay, we're going to make it, we're, we're going to assume the offensive tomorrow once again. Um, but little did they know that you know, General Hoke had arrived in force. Uh, there was rumors of his arrival. And then all during the night, the Army of Tennessee and D.H. Hill is flowing in. And the one and only council of war that General Bragg will have in the evening of March 7th at the Howard House, Hoke proposes to go after that lone brigade um, with the intent being to, for D.H. Hill to occupy the works along Southwest Creek, keep up the attention of those Union forces during the morning of March 8th while General Hoke makes this loop around the flank and allows him to bring almost 4,000 veteran soldiers right on top of uh, unsuspectingly at the, until the last second. Um, and like you said, it's, it's, you know what the outcome is. It only lasts about 45 minutes. There's approximately over 900 Union soldiers that are lost. Major- the vast majority of them are just captured uh, during, during this short 45-minute piece. Hoke is highly successful Upon hearing the guns, D.H. Hill launches the junior reserves in the lead across Southwest Creek, followed by the Army of Tennessee. And as the Army and Tennessee elements swing south towards the link up with Hoke, um, they alone capture several hundred Union soldiers. So it's quickly a very, very bad situation for General Cox, who, oh, by the way, is not even on the battlefield. Um, But this is where Bragg will lose his greatest opportunity. He has surprise. He has mass. He clearly has the initiative. All those principles of war that you strive for as a commander, he's got the advantage. Um, But Bragg will, upon suggestion by General Hoke, order D.H. Hill to basically disengage, uh, do an about-face, and then he's basically sent on a fool's errand about five miles. He's basically walking away from the fight all the way into the evening hours uh, with, with the intent of blocking the retreat route of the Union soldiers. Um, that doesn't happen. But what it does is it takes away almost 2,000 veteran soldiers from Bragg's attack because if, if Hill and Hoke would have combined and then continued their attack towards the east. Chances are the two lone brigades back there at Wise's Fork, most of those were provisional soldiers, what they called, they called themselves PVs. Uh, they were raw recruits or veterans returning home, returning back to Sherman's army. They're not your typical unit, poor unit cohesion, poorly led by just whoever happens to be the senior officer. Now you're in charge of this battalion or this regiment. Um, so it was a recipe for disaster. But by, do, by Bragg doing that, um, by the time Hoke was able to reorganize and reinitiate the attack towards the east, in that short window of time, uh, there's a missed opportunity, but it allows General Cox to basically get his butt on the battlefield. Uh, in the meantime, he's ordered up his veteran division, General Ruger's division of the 23rd Corps. These are veteran soldiers. They quickly move in. They seal that gap between Palmer and Carter's division and they immediately start digging in 
just like veteran soldiers do. So when when the when Hoke finally resumes the attack towards the east, they're now running up against veteran soldiers who are who've already started to uh, dig in and uh, and are quite able to uh, take it. So really, Bragg misses his opportunity there um, when things were going right on March eighth. Now, one of the things I really liked about this book is reading about a battle that's significant, as you demonstrate, both strategically significant and not small in size, but not one that that I knew all the tactical movements to. The way, if if you read a book about Shiloh, most people listening to the show know what's going to happen on the first day, what's going to happen on the second day. So at this point, I'm reading the book going, oh, hope attack broke through but you know captured then uh, Bragg sends the guys off in the wild goose chase now it's the next day March 9th uh, well there's a solid line of Union troops surely they're not going to renew the attack and I'm reading along reading along no they're not renewing the attack they're just sort of futzing around and organizing and now it's March 10th and I'm thinking well now now they really can't attack because the Union has been there for a whole day they're dug in uh, so tell us what happens. Well, on March 10th, Bragg um, tries to repeat the same recipe. I'm going to attack the uh, flank again. He is aware of the fact uh, um, Colonel Lipscomb's 2nd South Carolina Cavalry, which was intentionally left down towards Wilmington, has been watching that area. So he is aware of General Couch and Tudovit. The two remaining divisions of the 23rd Corps have basically marched up out of Wilmington along modern-day Highway 17. They're heading towards Richlands, that area right now. So he's aware. Bragg's has, Bragg has good reconnaissance. So he knows there's about another 10,000 Union soldiers that within the next day or so will be here to unite with, with Cox. So he, he tries one more last gallant effort. Um, he relies on General Hoke's division. Throughout the battle, Hoke um, is basically the hammer. He's always the main effort, the primary attacking force. And D.H. Hill is kind of relegated to a supporting effort. I don't know if that's because of their relationship, um, but but it's kind of interesting, Jerry, when you when you read the reports. Uh, whenever Bragg is given orders to D.H. Hill, it's sent by courier, and then I found amusing one time was go see General Hoke, Hoke, and he will tell you the rest of the details. It's almost like Bragg doesn't want to deal with D.H. Hill, wow. but. He, he chose, uh, Hoke is selected as, as the primary attack, and he attacks basically south to north, what he perceives to be the end of the Union line, but Cox is up to this game. He's, he's shipped an entire um, McQuiston's Brigade of Indiana regiments in the 180th Ohio and 174th have shifted now uh, to extend the left flank of the Union line. So when Hoke attacks what he thought was the end of the line, he's clearly attacking a line that overlaps him. And oh, by the way, because General Cox has interior lines and he's able to shift units, he's also able to shift artillery. And this is the, the one time in the battle where uh, the Union artillery is massed up to four batteries, darn near close to 20-some guns. Over half of them are 12-pound Napoleons. Anyone knows anything about artillery, that's the primary weapon to use against infantry in the attack. And roughly a dozen of those Napoleons are parked wheel-to-wheel right there along Wise's Forks on that little high ground there. So Hill's Oaks attack is, is pretty much doomed from the start. 
Yeah, I mean, the Union flank is, is refused, is, is swung back, so what looks like a flank attack is really a frontal attack. Yeah, and exactly, Jerry. Exactly. There's, there's no it, chance. As one, as one Confederate soldier would describe, it's the worst place I've ever been in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And they, if that's not enough, uh, then it's D.H. Hill's turn. Yes, it's almost like uh, as soon as Hoke is repo- repulsed, um, Cox calls off the counterattack because he's c- suspecting this might be just a ruse. And he's aware of the fact he's weakened his center. And about the same time the guns go silent along Wise's fork, all of a sudden it erupts in the center. And now there's uh, Colonel Orr's brigade from Ruger's division, three Indiana regiments, which basically extended double-arm interval to make up the difference for three regiments that departed. So they are really now being attacked by those elements, the entire elements of the Army of Tennessee. And it's somewhat an interesting story because some of these regiments, it's a reunion. Uh, from the, it's a reunion from the Atlanta campaign. It's a reunion from Nashville and Franklin. So it's almost like they're, they're, they're picking up where they left off a few months back. So, so and it literally becomes union... a nasty fight. And that's where the, the 120th Indiana literally almost loses its regimental colors in this afternoon of March 10th. Mm-hmm. But... Eventually, General Waffle and Hill, they realize they just do not have enough combat power to go up, and eventually they call off the attack, and that's when, uh, finally, when they disengage, Bragg makes the decision, knowing that reinforcements are on their way, um, he, he basically uh, surrenders the battlefield to General Cox, and Bragg will, in the afternoon of March 10th and through the evening of March 10th, um, they will begun, they begin the uh, slow evacuation of Kenston back towards Goldsboro. So, yeah, those forces had fought each other in Tennessee, and each separately was then sent to North Carolina, and they encounter each other again. It is, it is a remarkable uh, bit of history. The, so the battle is, is, well, who won the battle? When you look at it from the traditional sense, as sometimes we uh, gauge Civil War battles, I guess the fact that Bragg um, surrendered the battlefield to Cox, in the traditional measure, Cox is the victor. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to look at it from the standpoint, what was Bragg's overall objective, defeat or delay uh, General Cox out of Newburn, and which he effectively did from March 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th. He basically stopped. Cox's advance towards Goldsboro for four days. So that's 96 precious hours he bought for General Johnston to continue that concentration back at Smithfield. And they're far from, Bragg is far from defeated because the vast majority of these same Confederate regiments in the Army of Tennessee and Hoke's Division roughly uh, nine days later on 19 March will help route General Carlin's Division uh, of the 14th Corps off the battlefield at Bentonville nine days later. So they're far from defeated. Well, it, it is really a fascinating story. I enjoyed this book a great deal. I, I, I'm not sure if it's because uh, I have driven the van full of Greenville Stars U12 girls back when my daughters played <laughs> youth soccer from Greenville through Kinston, through Richlands, through Gum Swamp, down to games in Jacksonville or games in Richlands. Uh, or games in New Bern, but I, I realize in retrospect I've driven over this battlefield uh, 75 times, uh, not mm-hmm. knowing all that had taken place there. And then to go there this weekend with your book in hand, 
and read about these places as I'm looking at them and saying, I know this terrain, I've been here, uh, was really fascinating. But I think even for listeners who are uh, many miles from North Carolina, that you will really enjoy uh, this book. If you like a Civil War battle account, and if you have read Gettysburg and Shiloh and want to learn something new, that's not just uh, trivia because we found an obscure battle, but really something significant. Uh, you'll want to get a copy of To Prepare for Sherman's Coming, The Battle of Wise's Forks, March 1865, uh, by the co-authors Mark A. Smith and our guest tonight, Wade Sokolowski. Wade, thank you so much for being on the show. Jerry, it's always a pleasure, and thank you for what you do for our history. Uh, and listeners, thank you. For listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. <laughs> <laughs>